Hi, I'm Sakrad Singh from Zik Archive and welcome to the 18th episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, journalists and activists on topics related to their areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Nikki Ganinda Kaur Singh, who is a professor of religion and chair in the Department of Religious Studies at Colby College. She is the author of the books The Feminine Principle in the Sikh Vision of the Transcendent and also The Birth of the Khalsa, a Feminist Rememory of Sikh Identity. Professor Nikki Ganinda Kaur Singh has made a large contribution to Sikh studies with respect to interpreting Sikh literature, history, imagery and symbols from a feminine lens, and also in the translations of Gurbani and understanding the message of Guru Nanak. And so it's an honour to have her on the show as part of this history and philosophy series we are trying to develop. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Six Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Six Studies modular program for Six children aged between 4 to 16 years, with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now, they've published a new series of Gurumukhi learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sikstudentlearning.co.uk. But now, back to the podcast to learn more about the feminine principle of Sikhi with Professor Nikki Ganinderkor Singh. Who is Nikki Ganinder Kaur? I wish I knew that answer. Uh, that's really vital. And it's your identity, which is very much in flux. It always keeps changing. I'm beginning to see what um, Guru Nanak said. You know, we are more like Mehman. We must appreciate this life as temporary guests. So I feel I'm a temporary guest here. Guru Prasad jane Mehman taan dargay paave. Man. So knowing ourselves as guests and as a guest, what do I do in this world? I love to teach. I love to write. I love engaging with youngsters. I teach at Kobe College and I've been doing that for the last 33 years. I grew up in Patiala. My father um, and mom, I was very close to them. Um, this is, we are talking about the 60s when uh, the study of religion was just beginning comparative study of religion. My parents had spent a year at Harvard. Then they went back. And my father was the first chairman of the first department of religious studies. It was a very interesting building. It was built in the form of a ship with different sails. Each sail represents a different faith. And there was water all around it. And on top, there's flame symbolizing that all the religions are going towards the same goal. So I grew up there and lots of uh, foreigners used to come. My dad organized several conferences and Patiala was a small little town in those days. And so people often stayed with us. And so one such guest was Barbara Blair, who was a student of Buddhism at Columbia. And I became very good friends with her. And she gave me some names of schools, high schools for girls, in America. So I applied to one and I came here. So I came to America when I was very young, 
to finish my high school. And then I went and did my bachelor's BA. And I got very interested in Sikhism. It was only after coming to America that I started wondering, who in the world am I? And I remember taking a course on um, American transcendentalists and reading the American poet, Walt Whitman, Passage to India. And somehow the other, that poem stuck in my mind and kind of going back to India, what does that mean? So traveling subconsciously, traveling unconsciously within myself, within to my own past. And the more I went, the more reinforced I got in the Sikh tradition. So I wanted to study and I had nobody to speak Punjabi with there. So um, so I started learning, you know, really reading the Guru Granth Sahib. Every summer I would go to Patiala. I remember being with Ganiji and studying Guru Granth Sahib, Guru Nanak Bani and so forth. So over the years, it just kind of got more and more reinforced. And with your contribution to Sikh studies, you have a large focus on the feminine lens or interpretation of Sikhi. What brought you to this area and trajectory of research? That's very interesting. Now, when I was in college, this was my BA, bachelor's at Wellesley College, which is a liberal arts college. And I wanted to study something on the Sikh tradition, but there really was nobody to help me out. So I did an independent study and that is called the physics and metaphysics of the Guru Granth Sahib. And that thesis, believe it or not, is still stuck in my mind. And that was... How is this poetry, which is very physical, which is so full of alliteration and, you know, assonance, consonance, all this kind of very physical elements that you can discern. How is it so philosophically so rich, metaphysically so rich? So I started on that. But of course, in those days, I was translating everything he, 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 just the way I learned. We are all a part of our culture. Everything is internalized. And then I started teaching at Colby College. And one of my first courses was on Sikhism. So I'm using the translations. And I feel such alienation. I just didn't feel right. You know, this is tohe, mohe, mohe, tohe, antar kaisa. And, you know, you read these translations between thou and me and me and thou. What All this kind of very archaic stuff. Everywhere it's kind of male gender. So all those kind of, kind of very patriarchal, androcentric world, which I did not think was in the original That's when I started. But I also think there was one 1984 conference that I attended, and that was American feminists. And these were Christian, these were Jewish scholars. And for the first time, I heard them speak about the goddess. And they spoke about how much they, you know, these are Catholics and Episcopalians and Jewish scholars. And they found nothing in their own tradition you know, which was kind of validating. And that's what triggered me. I was inspired and I started looking at my own tradition and I found a wealth of materials there. So that's what, you know, so I think that was very crucial to me, uh, the fall of 1984, the American Academy of Religion and hearing these Judith Plasco and Carol Christ and these very Naomi Goldenberg, these very eminent scholars and 
they did something and I started looking at my own tradition. So that kind of gave me the urge. And how did your journey begin in terms of your research and your methods and reference systems in order to dispel some myths to deconstruct this gendered interpretation of Sikhi? To be very honest with you, and it still is, since my undergraduate years, it's really the poetry, the Guru Granth Sahib itself, the words themselves. That's it. That's it. That's what's most inspirational to me. And the more I read, the more I recover. And there's just such a treasure house. You know, there's no one, there's no one interpretation to it. There's no one translation to it. Little, little sentences. You know, I've been just doing that for Harvard University Press, Guru Nanak's Bani. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And every time I return to it, there's something else. So what I mean to say is, um, it wasn't like I didn't want to debunk. I'm not a deconstructor. I don't have to give up. It's just I want to add on. It's been seen as the male. Well, there's the female side too. So I don't like deletions. I don't like deconstructions, but I like additions. So here it is. It's a very, whatever I admire, whatever male scholars have done. I'm really grateful to them. Whatever has been done, that's what initiated me into the text. But now I see more angles and I hope people will build up on mine and so forth. So we kind of build up this body of knowledge, which is absolutely timeless. It's so rich. This cannot have, cannot have any sort of parameters. Regarding your book, The Feminine Principle and the Sick Vision of the Transident, which is a really inspiring book for me because it's one of its kind, something I'd not come across before. How did you come to write this book? How did you start this journey of writing the book and narrowing it down to those eight chapters in particular? That's very interesting, Sukhraj. Yes, that was my very first one. So to say that was my graduate thesis. I've been working on it and I was looking at it from a male angle till I went to that conference. And then I started looking at it from a feminist angle. But, you know, it just seems so simple. You know, I just and now too, I just start writing and it just evolves. Okay, here is chapter. Here is the feminine principle. Here is the mother. Here is Jyot. It's a spiritual. Here is knowledge. Here And then also um, I wanted to see how this tradition has continued on. So it begins with Guru Nanak and then Guru Gobind Singh. He had a lot he made his own contribution. He was a great poet himself. And to kind of envision his input, that was very important to me too. And then to kind of see what we are doing in the 20th century. Then to Pai Veer Singh, how did he interpret Guru Nanak? So it was kind of seeing, kind of looking at it from a historical perspective, but to see the literary world of Guru Nanak being reinforced by the gurus, being consolidated with Guru Gobind Singh and then kind of being reinterpreted by Pai Veer Singh in its poetic mode for the 20th century men and women readers. You mentioned that you look at the historical aspects and literature, but you also place a large emphasis on the imagery and the symbols of poetry. Can you elaborate more on those dimensions? That to me is the most, that's the language of the Guru Granth Sahib. That symbols. And so to me, it's very aesthetic, you know, kind of heightening of the senses. And that's something I'm really glad you asked me because, you know, 
The Feminine Principle was sort of my first book. And right now, my most current one, what I'm working on, it's a forthcoming one, is kind of the aesthetics of it, of the Guru Granth Sahib. And here again, so what is it? It's all, how, how do we read the Guru Granth Sahib? It's through its images. It's through its symbols. It's through its metaphors. And that's something we are not doing. You know, for, for example, when we read uh, the Guru Granth Sahib, it's for its doctrines. What is its philosophy? And we kind of formulate it. But this is kind of reading the, reading the text for the beauty of the text itself. It's all so beautiful. And so it's kind of uh, getting really intimately close to, to the Bani, to the language of the gurus. And when I look at it, there's just so much symbolism that deals with the female, with the woman. So I've been, so that's what I have been doing. But the most recent one is on the senses, but you know, how eyes and uh, hearing and touching and so forth is so vital to the gurus. And we underplay that. Somehow religion is all spirit, soul up there. And we ignore the body. And the gurus were remarkably progressive, remarkably radical, where they brought us to our bodies to our mothers who we are born from and to this world where we participate. So it's, it's really crucial that we uh, pay attention to, to the body and enjoy these symbols and images because that's what we have. All we have is this life and we really need to make the most of it. So it's a very existential philosophy that the gurus offer and that emerges in their poetry. We really have to come to terms with it. So that's why I emphasize, you know, the symbols because we, we need to look at it. That's how Guru Nanak spoke. What's the prime symbol? Ik, ikonkar. One. What is this one? O-N-E, ik. You know, he does not call Ram. He doesn't call Allah. He doesn't call Khuda, no Yahweh. It's one. And that's a really, really important symbol, image, however we want to think and we kind of ignore it. Because in this one, it's a mathematical abstract symbol. And yet in this very universal, pluriversal, multiversal, you can apply anything. You can plug in anything, male, female, ant, sun, moon, you know, and, and look at Guru Gobind Singh's job sub too, you know, just what beautiful images, how powerful those symbols that he uses, because that one is infinite. Ik Onkar, that you know, it goes forever and ever. That arch is never closed. So that infinity is boundless. And the only way we can talk about that infinity is through symbols, which are, what are symbols? There's no one word. There's no one term to define or to, uh, you know, to say this, the symbol, this symbol is this. No way. Because symbols are multivalent. There are many meanings to the symbols. So sometimes when we are reading poetry and my students will ask me, pressing, what does this mean? I don't know. It could be this. It could be that. It could be that because there's so much multivalence there. They can be paradoxical, totally opposite. But there's also kind of a subjectivity in symbols because they make us participate in this world. So when we talk about the female in Barama, you know, she's going through the 12 seasons. She's going through the 12 months of the calendar. She's really kind of participating in that wider world. 
and creating that link for us with 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 each and every little creature here with the landscape with the physicality with the seasons so it kind of puts us in touch so symbols put us in touch with our cosmos and we need to decipher them coming back to the book would it be possible to explore the chapters with you by looking at the literary devices that helped you uh, like the poetry that illustrate the evidence of the feminine principle so one example would be um, what you describe as the ontological existence of Sikhi, which is uh, Mata, as in uh, Mata Tarti. Yes, yes, Mata, basically mother. And just think of us, we're both Sikhs. When we think about the divine, what image comes to us, to our mind? It's always the male, it's always the father. And I just want us to see the other side of it. There's of course the father, but that's also the mother. Tu, tu mera pita, tu hai mera mata. Ape purk, ape hai nar. It itself is male, it itself is female. So the divine is both. And I want, I want that picture. I want to bring that picture of the mother in the Sikh imagination, in the individual and collective imagination, worldview of the Sikh tradition, because it's very, very primal. It's there. And so mother is kind of the ontological being. Nobody would exist without the mother. Mata tarta mahat. You know, so Guru Nanak, Guru Angat, they are all pointing to it, that this whole planet is, you know, so it could be the earth. Yes, that's where we are, where we are all cradled. What a beautiful image. This is the shalok to the Jipti Saab. And it's actually Guru Nanak's, which Guru Angat's, here it is Guru, uh, uh, second Guru's. But so what is happening here is kind of creating this world, this scene. It's a really beautiful scene where all of us are sitting here. This is the mother on whose lap we all play. So all of us are together. There are no hierarchies. There are no caste. There's no gender divisions. And there are the, the two nurses are Divasrat Duidaidaya. Divas, the day and night are our two nurses, are our two maids, so to say, on whose lap we play. So it's a very beautiful image. This is our world. So this is kind of the ontological being. This is who we are. But at the same time, from here, to have that, to, to really, to, so I really want us to see um, the mother, what how it forms the ontological ground of everything. Formation, F-O-R-M, form. It's really important. Because this is going to kind of inform our attitudes, how we think about the world, how we relate with the world. And from this information, we kind of transform our attitudes. So here I think of only the father being the superior. How can I forget my mother who gave me birth? Who from whose body I came out from? Who, whose milk I fed upon? I would not exist, but we don't think about it. And also it gives me, and it takes me to my other thing, not only uh, formation, informing, transforming, but also helping me perform in this world. How do I react to the planet? 
What are we doing to our rivers right now? What are we doing to our climate right now? What are we doing to our animals and species and all that we are, all uh, the trashing of our planet that we are doing? This is all the way we think, the way we imagine the world to be. So I think if we start having, this is our earth, this is our mother earth, we change our attitude, we change our actions, and we finally conform to our humanity, to our how we should exist as humans. So to me, uh, the mother, the ontological being, we really need to imagine and make it a part of ourselves, part of our everyday actions, attitudes. So I think to me, what the gurus were doing is they didn't give us laws. Hey, you know, they didn't say climate change and so forth, but they gave us these devices, these symbols, which can change the consciousness of the people. So we need to change our psyches and the way we change. And this is something by reading, by really making a sense of these images. And so that's why to me, uh, the symbolism, the imagery is very crucial because that's how we change our worldview, our change our consciousness, how we change our attitudes. Laws and so forth are very external to me. You also explore the bride and groom analogy in Sikhi in your next chapter and the interconnectedness of this unification. How significant is that to the feminine principle of Sikhi? Very, very important. Thank you. Um, so I just want to finish up with the mother by saying that um, mother is a very crucial symbol. But again, I don't want it to be misinterpreted. Okay, so we don't want every a woman, every woman should be a mother. That's her only role. Not at all. M- motherhood comes in many ways. It's creativity. Mata, Mahat, you know, it can be writing, it can be painting, it can be cooking, it can be so many things. So th- that's one thing I do not want us, uh, you know, uh, the Sikh world to kind of think, oh, mother, so everybody should marry and have sons. No, that's not, this is not what the image means at all. It's, it's, it's changing our attitudes, respecting our mothers and sisters and everybody along with our brothers and fathers, of course. Um, so the mother is not just the mother, but it's also the bride. It's a spiritual refinement. And we come to that. And, in, and with the bride symbol, what's associated is her spiritual refinement and her intellectual development. So the female, mata, mat, you know, again, mat, mat is wisdom. So the mother is wisdom. And there are lots of images, um, Guru Nanak has lots of verses where um, the sister-in-law is cherished because she gives good advice to the brothers-in-law, Devar, Jait, and all that, you know. So she's a wise one. She's a smart one. And so the bridal symbol is very crucial in the sense she is spiritually refined. She knows how to get to the divine one. And so we are all brides, men and women, all of us, because we are, we are in love with the divine groom. And I know this sounds very gender biased, quite agree with it. But in those days to kind of um, recognize the female refinement, she's psychologically, spiritually, intellectually more advanced. So the gurus take on her persona. When you read the Guru Granth Sahib, it's written in the female, uh, female tone. 
not only was a woman but also as as the female deer harni homa ban basa guru nanak if i were a female deer if i were a fish you know and i would go with my arms spread out to see my lover across the river i mean he is such beautiful concrete images so the female is lauded exalted for her spiritual intellectual psychological refinement sophistication and so her jewels her dress code everything is expressed through her her tone everything so it's really a validation of the female body validation of the material world and that's what we need to acknowledge and also keep in mind it's also gender bending because the gurus are the females so it's not those gender hierarchical gender roles all males yes the gurus happen to be male you know that that's a fact but they also had a great respect for the female and so they are kind of you know they are dressing up like women they are taking up her persona they are taking up her voice and expressing their intimacy their what should i say voyage mystical voyage to the divine one who is beyond gender who is who is kind of everything infinite one but i think it's the bridegroom metaphor that really adds poignancy to the poetry to what the gurus are saying that sensuousness that we see that we feel that palpability of their verse comes through the bridegroom symbol and the poetry so it's very very precious i think and 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 we also need to see many you know guru nanak has a whole section on suchajji you know the person the woman who is very refined and then there's a opposite of her kuchajji who's good for nothing and you know what does a suchajji do so they're giving us models uh, who is it i remember reading some uh, i think it was an athlete or somebody we can't be unless we see so they're giving us these women paradigms you know here is a suchajji here is the jitani here is the pan pan sister is sister has the wisdom so they they're giving us these images which are very these paradigms which are very affirming for women and we need to hold on to those but you know when we when we're looking at uh, when you hear commentators when you hear interpreters it's kind of glossed over and uh, i just want to bring attention to them there's so many and not only from the human world but also from ant a little ant guru nanak in the japji oh my gosh she's revered i remember i had asked uh, some i i when i teach here at colby college um i had my students write in their little response to the japji saab and i remember this young student of mine was totally taken up by the ant analogy you know how guru nanak says the ant who has love in her heart much better than princess and so forth you know sovereigns so you know this this is how their poetry kind of touches us adding to that i wanted to ask you about this idea of calling upon and invoking the feminine energy which leads me to your other chapter about durga what is the significance and the essence of durga what does she represent and how does it factor into all that we have discussed um, so far Yeah. It really it's very interesting that Guru Gobind Singh such a hero chivalrous courageous guru uh recalls her 
You know, there's so many poems, three or four poems devoted to Durga, Chandi. Chandi is another name for Chandi Divar, Durga Divar. And I find out, I found it very interesting. So when I was working, uh, you know, on that book of mine, I was quite surprised. I mean, look at it, you know, Indian mythology, how many gods and goddesses we have, 300 million gods and goddesses. Who is the one that impinges on Guru Gobind Singh's imagination? It's Durga. Why? Why Durga? And Durga is a very interesting figure. So I did some research on her. And if you read about her in the Puranas, you know, Markandya Purana, there's a whole story where the good gods and the demons are having a battle. And the demons are becoming victorious. So if the demons become victorious and the good gods are defeated, the world goes topsy-turvy. So what do they do? They all come together. The male gods all come together and they pool in their energies and from their collective energies emerges this woman who laughs. Ha ha, not to worry, I will take care of them. And that is Durga. So this is kind of Durga who's kind of, you know, an independent, autonomous woman and who goes ahead and defeats demons. So these kind of negative forces. After all, it's a myth. M-Y-T-H. It's a story. But stories are very important. You know, who, who was it? Um, uh, the world is not made up of atoms. The world is made up of stories. Very eminent American poet who said that. It, it really kind of sta- has stayed with me. So the way we think, it's a, we ignore stories. And so Guru Gobind Singh was taking a story. I mean, he's not believing in Gur- Durga. He's not worshipping Durga. No. But, you know, she's a part of Indian history. She's a part of Indian mythology. And stories are wonderful. So at a time when he wanted to instill heroism and courage amongst his people, he goes for this for this Durga who gets rid of demons, who gets rid of evil. And so she brings the goodness to, you know, balances the world. So I think a lesson deep down there is too that we have to fight for human rights. We have to fight. We have to be valiant like Durga. We have to go on. And um, another aspect of Durga is that she is independent. She's not tied to a male god. In fact, somebody wants to marry, the demon wants to, and she's like, uh-uh, no way. You know, so she she's, she's autonomous. And to me, that's very good too, that a woman does not need a savior or a partner or anything. She can be who she is. And another aspect of her is that she carries many weapons, weapons associated with Vishnu or Shiva or various gods. So in a way, she's also a harmonizing figure, collective figure. So she's not just an independent, just one, you know, you can't make her into one. She's either this or that. She's kind of an all-encompassing deity who, who happens to be female, who happens to be very powerful. And I think that attracted Guru Gobind Singh and he wrote poetry about her. And he says that I'm writing poetry about her, which is, and he's not worshiping. So that we have to make it clear because the worship is only to that one timeless, infinite one who cannot be installed in any which way. That cannot be ever made into any form or incarnation at all. Speaking of Guru Gobind Singh Ji, how did you go from the first book, The Feminine Principle of the Sikh Vision of the Transcendent, to the second book, um, The Birth of the Khalsa, A Feminist Rememory of Sikh Identity? Again, with a focus on the feminine principle and energy found in the Khalsa, which you really explore in detail. 
That was a very, very tough question. My father had passed away and I had started the book around that time. And it was one of the toughest books to write, but also I wanted to see what is the Khalsa? What does it mean for me? And you know, we use the word memory. It seems to be of a past, but memories have a future. What we remember is crucial for how we envision the world, the future to come. So to me, it was very significant to kind of return to my past because all I see is the five items of faith. It's always kind of associated with the male figure. It is male guru. It was a male panch piyaras. So all that, so I, I just wanted to kind of remember from my own personal, I'm a Sikh woman. What is my past? How was it? So it's kind of, it's, it's a personal kind of re, remembering kind of, and, and it's a remember, by also remembering I'm connecting with myself, with my past. And what I saw was, it was really intriguing to me. I really, I wish people would read my chapter four, especially. I spent a lot of time doing it because we see these five Ks, five items of faith. And we say, yes, they come. but to me, it intrigued me. Why did, why did, these are kind of unusual. Here on Basaki, why would Guru Gobind Singh make these five? It really was a question in my mind. So then I, when I started looking at the Guru Granth Sahib, I see that all of them are there. So to me, it was kind of connecting. Sometimes in our history, we rupture. Guru Nanak, peace loving, very sweet, gentle person. Guru Gobind Singh, chivalrous, you know, fighting and so forth, valorous. So there comes kind of a schizophrenia in our mind, this and then that. And to me, this is a total continuation. And I see the, you know, it's, it's like what Guru Nanak envisioned, Guru Gobind Singh crystallized that in his Basaki. And to me, I was really kind of, you know, what Guru Nanak himself, what, what happened in the Puratan Janam Saki records, how Guru Nanak disappeared for three days and comes back and kind of declares there's no Hindu, there is no Muslim, you know, that Guru Nanak's revelation. To me, the Bisakhi that Guru Gobind Singh, that happened in 1699, that as we remember it in our collective memory, to me, that's a replay of Guru Nanak's revelation when he disappears for three days. So to me, there was, there was a real link. It's kind of a repeat of it in, in its own way, which I wanted to unfold and explore for myself. And to me, the five items are really, you know, they're all in the Guru Granth Sahib. And they must have some, at some psychological level, they must have played with Guru Gobind Singh, you know, for Kada. Uh, 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 Kar kar karta kangan pehre, in You know, so it's a woman who wears the bracelet. Kar kar karta. You know, look at the alliteration. It's so lovely. So, you know, the actions that we do, this is a reminder. And there's no beginning, no end to this bracelet. So it, in a way, it gets rid of all castes. You know, it's not a Brahmin should do this and a Kshatriya should do that or a Vesha. No. It makes us cognizant. Kar kar karta. It's the creator. The creator, the common creator we all share. So as we act, and action is very important in the Sikh world. 
as we act, we remember our creator. And when we remember that there's only one creator, we are all children of that same parent, same mother, father, same parent. We have a very different attitude towards life. Then we really want to work for global peace and goodness, health and education, for climate change, for all, for universal good, not just for me, not just for the Sikhs, not just this part. So it, 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 it's like, it's a reminder. So all these, so these are, again, I want to emphasize that these are symbols and we should treat them as such. We cannot make them, this is a sign. There's a difference between a sign and a symbol. Oh, here's a Sikh wearing a, the, you know, we cannot. We have to really see its multifoldness. You know, the long hair and so forth, it's kind of connected with Samson and, you know, oh, that masculine, patriarchal, uh, what should I say, strength and all. No, it's a woman who braids her hair and she holds the comb and she she's with patience and with love. So these are these are very feminine, very associated with the female body, these five items. And I just wanted to wanted to expose my community to that because this is what we are, who we are. So rather than just saying sign, seeing them as external sign, signature, or somebody's not wearing a turban or something, he's not a Gursik or whatever we mean by that. No, think about what, what the gurus are saying. It's, 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 it's multi-levels that is taking place. So each of them. So I've worked on them and uh, I wish people would read it. That's something I, I very much urge readers, but you know, you, I, I'm so busy writing that I, I can't promote my work. <laughs> Where does this misrepresentation come from? How have we become so far removed from the feminine principle and energy of the gurus from where we are today? What are some of the leading causes of that, you know? And I know you speak a lot about praxis in particular. So what can we do to redress some of these misconceptions? I think it's harmful and dangerous to both men and women to have that patriarchal system, that one-sided interpretation. I mean it. Gender roles are not easy for guys. So I have full empathy for my male partners and brothers and sons and uncles and, you know, so forth. We cannot, these gender roles are extremely debilitating we cannot, each of us is so rich as a human being, full of potential, and it just kind of kills that. I can't act like this. I can't cry for a man or a woman. I have to do this. And so this is very, very erroneous. And we need to really recognize it. So you ask me why not? Okay, now there are several reasons. One, I think the gurus were just too progressive. And we readers, even in the 21st century, Sukraj, I hate to say, we do not read him properly. We cannot. We, are, we don't have that liberal mindset. I really mean it. They were amazing. The more I read of Guru Nanak, the more appalled I am. What a open, multiversal human being he was. So that's something we lack. Why do we lack that? I don't know. Are we humans? We have had this in all cultures. Patriarchy has dominated and we have really been patriarchal. And um, I think with the Sikh tradition, there may be an added problem. And that may be because 
the gurus didn't, they say equality. There's no priesthood and so forth. So there's an inbuilt equality. So we just assume it. Of course we are equal. Of course we know it. And we are never self-critical. We are always criticizing others. Oh, Hindus are uh, like that or Muslims are like that. They have this. But what about us? We don't. We are, of course, we are all equal. You know, everybody is. So I think that kind of uh, nonchalance, kind of, you know, celebration, yes, we don't match our practices with our, what the Guru say, with uh, what the Guru Granth Sahib says. So I think we really need to manage, and I, that has to begin with self-critique. I, I would say two things are very important. One is just look every day. Are we really treating our daughters as well as our sons? Why is this culture so dominated by boys? Why? You know, so it's always been there. And I think in the Sikh tradition, there may also be the colonial input that kind of hyper-masculinity that comes by. Here are the macho Sikhs, you know, defending the British, fighting for them. And, you know, that machismo that comes in, uh, I think that has been debilitating as well. So colonialism, our basic, you know, inability to uh, read the text has been harmful. And for that, as I was saying, two things are important. One, being really self-critical, seeing every day. You know, how am I treating my daughter? How am I treating my mom? How am I treating my sister? Just every day, simple things like that. My teacher, male teacher versus female teacher. And these are universal, I have to say. These patterns, these gender roles and how we see. We really have to be self-critical. And it's hard to do. Of course, I'm not. You know, others are. It has to start at the individual level. Number two, I urge everybody to read the Guru Granth. It's something, it does something. Keep reading. You Read it yourself. Don't read his translation, her translation, that one. Read it again and again. It's very simple. They spoke very simply. They wanted to be understood. These are not, you know, highfalutin stuff. Simple, but it's powerful. And it really resonates. It kind of really hits you, strikes you deep inside. And once it hits you, you your attitude, you one is transformed. You want to work for the fellow goodness of everybody. And it's interesting, I'm doing something on the Janam Sakhis right now. And wherever Guru Nanak goes, just this is Jandene, you know, Naam, Dan, Ishnan. Three things he gives Naam, Dan, Ishnan. And it's really Naam is to remember the Divine One, that we are all one. That oneness has to be kept into focus because this oneness is not a concept. We say, oh yeah, we are monotheistic, but it's not monotheistic. It's not, uh, you know, there is one God. It's not that. It's an experience of oneness. Ik onkar, one being is, you have to experience that. It's not, I believe in one God. So I believe in one God, you believe in too many gods. So I, you and I are enemies. No, this is one, this one is inclusive of all the gods, his God, no God, Nirvan, which is emptiness, Buddhas. Guru Nanak speaks of every, everything is a part of that one. So we really need to experience that and feel that because only then, you know, so, so the gurus didn't give us formulas. They didn't give us, uh, I believe in something. It's really the experience of that. And so to experience is to be a Sikh. It's that existential thing. And so Nam and then Dan is kind of, so the Nam does not end here. 
So one day, there's a lovely Sakhi I came across and Guru Nanak is infatuated with the divine one and he is singing and he's actually, he's also dancing kind of, you know, he's so enraptured by the divine one. And immediately afterwards, he goes to the langar and makes sure food is being prepared. So what I'm saying is, so naam is important, remembering, but also social, you know, action, humanitarian actions, what we do, we stand for human values. We fight like Durga. That's the model he gave us. And then Ishnan, the personal, the body, the cleanliness, and this purification of the body to kind of respect the cultivation of the body is very important. So you can't just be like, you know, recluses or go into fasting and so forth, where you hate your body and so forth. No, it's just really respect for the self, respect for the world. And it all comes from the remembrance of the divine one. Has there been a follow-up to your work, maybe some further research from other scholars and researchers that have been inspired by your work? Oh, yes, absolutely. There's no end. It's, it's just, we're actually, we're just beginning. And it's a very exciting moment in uh, Sikh academics. So both in India and abroad or in the global world, here you are, you're a prime example yourself, sitting in Denmark and here you're doing this. So it's just really incredible. So I think also with the internet and so forth, there are lots of voices and I'm very, very happy to see that. And there are chairs for Sikh studies. But my, my, um, my goal, my vision is for... Sikh literature and art to become really mainstream. I just don't want it to be amongst the Sikhs or just at academic universities where they teach Sikhism, you know, a few here and there. It should be a part of the whole curriculum. If you're doing poetry, Guru Nanak's poetry should be there. Or Guru Gobind Singh's poetry or any of the gurus, Guru Arjun's, you know. So why not? Or in art. I think there's something about us and here I want us Sikhs as a community to be self-critical. We just are so insular. We want to keep, the Guru Granth Sahib is so revered that we don't want to share it with the world. I love the Guru Granth Sahib. I have the greatest respect for the Guru Granth Sahib. I am because of the, but doesn't mean my students should not know about it. It should be read as poetry. When I say it's poetry, sometimes when we make Guru Bani, it becomes too daunting for others, for non-Sikhs. How do we break that chasm? It's poetry. Poetry is universal. Guru Nanak is a poet. I say something like that, I get, I'm reprimanded. Guru Nanak was not a poet. He's writing, it's not Bani, it's not poetry, it's Guru's Bani. Of course it's Guru's Bani. This is the voice. But it's poetry. What's wrong with poetry? Guru Nanak himself calls himself a shire. He calls himself divana. You know, he's totally, you know, totally in love with the divine one. He calls himself a poet, shire, twice. And yet, if I call him a poet, I'm doing something wrong. It's sacrilegious. So I think that's just not right. And the same thing with art. We won't have an we won't have an image of Guru Nanak where the Guru Granth Sahib is. What are we so scared about? Why can't we put the figure and the voice together? So, so I think that there is a lot of paranoia that we get from around us, you know, and unnecessarily so. So, if we could, sh- you know, share the, the Janam Saki 
paintings and so, illustrations are so rich artists are doing so much you know arpana kaur and so many others around here in america it would be really nice to have those works exhibited but somehow it's like you know there's some kind of insularity so i think we need to need to do many things you know at the same time it has to be multi-pronged our vision where where we will be enriched and we want others to be enriched by our heritage so it's kind of give and take we want to create arabesques of understanding and of literature and art and music is taking uh, is doing very well kirtan which i hear you know in london and so forth i've been there at the white house to there was kirtan it was really very beautiful where many different instruments are being used but unfortunately why don't we have many more women in the golden temple why don't we have more women doing public uh, performances and that's where we really need to match up our everyday with our guru granth sahib with the message of the gurus where is that we talk about equality how often whenever i'm seeing um darbar sahib do kirtan it's always i see the men sitting there i barely see any women who's at the who's the granthi it's always a male figure why aren't women 50% of the worshipers there female where are they that invisibility even in the 21st century is is really detrimental i don't know why we have to hide our women why are they just in the kitchens langars and not even serving prashad in the congregation so something is awry i hope uh, by the time of jalam things will be all set right you know sorted out but you you all are playing a role and that's admirable thank you i think that was a really good discussion as an introductory episode to this topic for those listening and coming across your work for the first time and also for those that are familiar with it in the past it's an area of six studies which i believe is not considered enough um, among the day-to-day discourse of sikh history and philosophy and so i would highly recommend for those wanting to learn more about this research to buy your two books the feminine principle in the sikh vision of the transcendent and also the birth of the khalsa a feminist rememory of sikh identity i read them both in the last couple of months and i highly encourage others to do the same on the sikh archive platform from now on and so thank you for all your contribution to sikh studies and also in advance for your upcoming book on guru nanak which i'm really looking forward to reading and uh, exploring further with you and also thanks to our generous patrons that allow me to create these podcasts so please do let me know which topics you'd like to hear from me next in the near future i'd also like to thank our sponsor six student learning and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media pages that continue to motivate us to actively record and share sick history we hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more sick history accessible in audio format so if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more please share with others so that we can in turn attract more supporters that help us to generate more episodes thank you Thank you.